Usually when people ask me, like, what's the connection between science and music, is I say that people underestimate the creativity you need in science and the rigor you need in music, and you truly need both. In science, you have to be creative at the outset. You have to think about the universe of questions that are out there or like ways to explore them and to think about you know, how you might solve a problem. You have to rigorously set forth a path to test that hypothesis, collect all the appropriate controls, gather the data, prove it out, analyze it. In music, you start off and you just start riffing and going in all directions. You have to figure out how does it structure into a song. Then you have to lay down some 80 tracks and think about all the pieces and harmonies. And both of them require that initial creativity. When I breathe in, I breathe in doubt. Oh, will somebody help me out? I'm on a Chuck from Above the Basement, Boston Music and Conversation. I am recording this on Thanksgiving morning of 2018. And while many of us have a great deal to be thankful for, no matter when you are listening to this, we should all try and remember those in need. There are many organizations that could use our help, like Boston's Pine Street Inn, which provides emergency shelter and street outreach to nearly 2,000 homeless men and women each day, and Bridge Over Troubled Waters, which helps to transform the lives of runaway, homeless, and high-risk youth with services that guide them towards self-sufficiency. There are countless other nonprofits who work to make the world a better place, so please reach out to your communities and help where you can. In that same spirit, we were honored to sit with the amazing Pardis Sabeti, who is doing her part to help those in need with her work at the Sabeti Lab. Dr. Sabeti is a computational geneticist with expertise developing algorithms to detect genetic signatures of adaptation in humans and the microbial organisms that infect humans. I only understand a few of the words I just said, but in simple terms, she's working to eradicate the Lassa and Ebola viruses. Dr. Sabeti completed her undergraduate degree at MIT. Her graduate work at Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar got her medical degree from Harvard Medical School, and she was named a Time Magazine Person of the Year as one of the Ebola fighters. But perhaps the coolest thing she does is perform as the lead singer and co-songwriter of the Boston-based rock band Thousand Days. So here is our conversation with Party Sabeti, recorded at the Broad Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's miserable outside, which is why I didn't bring the whole shebang that I usually bring. Yeah. I knew I was going to be running for my life trying to not get Pretty wet and, and melt. Yeah. So there's many reasons why I think we are sitting here. One reason is just because we love what you do, and it's very cool to be sitting here with Dr. Pardis Sabeti. The work that you've done, I've heard of in the past, because I'm not in that direct space, but I live in the in medicine, and so I really wanted to meet and talk, and, and here we are. Here yeah, we are. Thank you. Well, my pleasure. This is, yeah. it's great. Where do you live? You live in this, you live right in the city? Yeah, I live in Kenmore Square. In Kenmore Square? Mm-hmm. Okay, that place is changing a lot, too. We're it in is. Kenmore Square. No, we're in Kendall Square. Oh, where are we? Kendall. Oh, 
<laughs> yeah. See, now you made me. You made me question myself for yeah. a second. Oh, Kenmore. Sorry, Kenmore. It, it by does the, confuse by, people. by Fenway. Wow. Yeah. I used to live out there too when I went to Northeastern. Oh yeah. Definitely. Right after you get off of the uh, Star Drive mm-hmm. to go towards Fenway Park. Yeah. You go up the ramp. Yeah. I used to live in, the, in those apartment buildings. Apartment I had friends building. that lived there. Yeah, yeah. I know you're talking about. And yeah. I think congratulations are in order. You have a new. Member of the family, I do. And a I baby, do. yes, I've new. Cheers to that. That's Thank really you. exciting. Yeah. What's yeah. his name? Congratulations, Liam. Liam. Yeah, he's and a, he's a small guy now, right? He's only like how old? So he was born three months early. We heard, uh-huh. yeah. So yeah, so he's three months early. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So twenty seven he weeks. He's doing great. He's good. He's a strong boy. You're someone that I think that from day one you've been uh, handling a lot of things at once. Is that fair to say? Um, yeah, I, I like to do a lot of different things. Or doing yeah. a lot of things. Yeah, but really one thing at a time. But Yeah, and I read something about you that you moved here at a really young age, a couple years old, from mm-hmm. Iran. You and your sister? Yeah. She would actually advance, teach you some school that she yeah. had already learned? That's right, and yeah. And you'd be we, that sponge and yeah, was, learn what she learned? That's right. I mean, yeah. we were basically, we were immigrants, and we are kind of moving from house to house and, you know, had a just sort of a chaotic but in a lovely way childhood. And one kind of thing my mom would do is she got a chalkboard and some, like, books from a garage sale and yeah. had my sister teach me in the summertime. So oh. it kept us both occupied. And my sister got really serious about it and made report cards, and we had PE, <laughs> and, you know, we even had, art, um, even had a phys- musical that we did. Ed? We had phys ed. She That's was funny. Good. She Yeah, she really took to it. So, yeah. She, you had a musical. We even did a musical every like summer. Like at the end of the summer? Yeah, yeah. With I mean, it was like just with our neighbors. So there's like, yeah. I think like the dog played a part. You know, it was a little bit. Right. So we did um, Grease 2. Huh. Um, Grease 2? Yeah, kind of random, right? Yeah. And then we did Annie and Grease 2. Yeah, Grease 2. Because I remember we just liked Grease 2 because there was, I don't know if you remember that movie, the end I of do. it. They're like in a float in the water and we, we did that whole scene on the pool. <laughs> I don't think I've gotten that far into <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, really. But I just, I think we chose it because of a couple of scenes that we were excited about. Yeah. yeah. I wish there was videos back then. That that must have been a horrible. It must have been really bad. And we were pretty excited because we took the dining table and we put like a cloth over it and that was the that was the changing room. I was the guy. I was not. You were the guy. I you was were the, Danny Zuko. No, that did, that's well, that's, Greece, num- again, that's too. Was that British guy? Do you remember who was? I do. I met that exchange student. I met that guy. Yeah, uh, you were that guy. No, I met him because uh, Ron. I don't know if you know this. I used to be an actor in New York City. Really? And um, <laughs> we did a ten-minute play festival. Okay. Where we had people like send in scripts and chose like ten. Okay. Then they would put on their 10-minute play, yep. and he knew one of the actors in the, one of the plays, and he showed up. I'm like, aren't you that guy from Grease 2? <laughs> oh, nice. And he came in, and uh, yeah, and he didn't want to pay. <laughs> he didn't want to pay to get in, so we well, let him well, in because he was go. famous. Well, but, uh, well, we got to find him. I don't know I, what he's doing now. Yeah. But you both were, it was, sounds symbiotic. It sounds oh, like yeah, yeah. there was some need each way and some joy each way. We, yes. No, no, we, we definitely both got a lot out of it. I think it helped her. Having to teach something, obviously, it's a whole different challenge. You have to really understand it to teach it. So she got a lot out of learning to teach and really becoming expert in the area she was teaching. And then I got to learn stuff essentially like a year and nine months in advance of when I would have learned it. So it was awesome. Yeah, no, we both got really into it. And then at varying times, the Holly Hobby, she, we started, she wanted classmates. So Holly Hobby was my classmate. You I mean, we, we, we had a whole, sorry, it's a bit of a troublemaker. And then my, my cousin, when he'd come up to visit from England, he would jump in as well. My mom always would give us, we'd do book reports on, what was it, Encyclopedia Brown and like. Yeah. Are you a musical family? No, we have a musical loving family. Yeah. And like a lot of my dad's side of the family just sort of sings and like hacks around, but nobody's really musical. Except for you. 
I don't know if I'd call myself music. I love music, music, and I like. You wouldn't to write call music. yourself musical. Well, I mean, I I'm just not. I, I wouldn't like. I wouldn't make it in an orchestra or something like that. Like well, neither I, would you know, I, but I'm yeah. musical. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. So I think I think I probably got that from my dad's side of the family. They just all kind of inherently love to sing and be with music. That's the main thing you do. You sing with with your band. I do. Yeah. You, but you play guitar too, don't you? Yeah. I mean, well, I play a lots of different instruments. Piano is the only thing I ever got trained on. Yeah. And so I can play piano, and then guitar and bass, and you know, drums on like the rock band game. I love that a lot. I love that a lot. <laughs> Um, so that counts. We'll count that. You know, it, it frankly, it counts, right? Yeah. You've got to get pretty good and you get pretty proficient, yeah. to be honest. I, I actually, for all my like nieces and nephews, I make them play rock band because you really learn the drums. A few of the musicians we've talked to have music on rock band. They've oh, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, we got to get a thousand days on that. A thousand days? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. So you did musicals with your sister back in the day, and mm-hmm. you were learning math and science and other things. Was there something that you remember, or a time of your life, or something that triggered the academic bug? I always joke that like we're an immigrant family and kind of a refugee family. So my sister and I, my dad likes to joke that he sort of gave us every option of what we could be in life. He's like, you can be anything you want to be in life, a doctor or a lawyer. So you just, you know. <laughs> that was his delivery? Is, yeah, kind of. He used to always giggle and he'd be like, the world is your oyster. You know, as long doc- as you're a doctor or a lawyer. Yeah. And so my sister is a lawyer and I'm a doctor, but neither of us practice. Right. She does policy for Facebook. So she's busy right. using a lot of her legal background. And, and the work I do uses a lot of medical background, but sure. neither of us actually are practicing in the field. I watch your TED Talk uh-huh. today. The thing that struck me the most about it is, first of all, the importance of the topic, because you're talking about a devastating disease. You're also talking about friends you lost mm-hmm. to that disease. So it's a very personal thing yeah. for you, not just, I mean, certainly you, you, as a scientist, you're trying to solve this problem of that, of that's, that's, that's killing yeah. so many people. But when it affects people that you love and you work with, I mean, I can't even imagine talking about something like that that's so personal you know actually that's funny because in that talk i have been saying in that talk but they, they, there's they, oh, they wanted that to, wasn't in there i know they i know they wanted to cut it down a little bit well i was wondering because yeah. you started the talk with the villagers singing, singing in the yeah. morning and i actually thought there might be a thread back to yep. that is music something you were always drawn to even though you didn't have it in the family was that something that you did through college and through all your studies there well too? i didn't actually ever do like do music myself really until i was in grad school and two of my friends who were americans who were there with me we were at oxford and mm. um, they would fantasy band you know we'd always we would all go to shows together a lot so i used mm-hmm. to go to a lot of music shows what, I was like, what do you mean fantasy band a lot fantasy band. i was just you know sit around and talk about their band name and the mm. first oh. songs and what the gig would be like and you know they would have their guitars and they would kind of goof around on them a little bit and right. talk like fantasy about fantasy football yeah, yeah. yeah. Fantasy. Have you ever have you ever read the book King Dork? It's pretty amazing. Um, that's a great book for anybody who likes music. But in oh, it, they King Dork. King Dork. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I haven't heard that one. Uh, oh, it's awesome. Really fun. It re- laugh out loud. Funny with some of their fantasy band names and stuff. And it's <laughs> we just do it all the time. The people who just names. basically come up with a name and you're like, oh, this is this would be our band. And um, anyway, so Taylor and um, Bruce were the two guys and. They one night were just talking about their band, and I was like, "You guys need to stop talking about it. Just do it. No fantasy, Why don't you just right? do it?" And then um, they said, "Well, we don't. We'd at least need a rhythm section, and we don't. We can't just be two guitarists." And I was like, "Well, what does that entail?" Even though I go to concerts, I never thought about the structure of music. Yeah. And they're like, "Well, a bass player," and I was like, "Okay, like I'll go get one. Let's do this." <laughs> and so I got one the next day with Bruce, and uh, we formed One Thousand One Moose. I'm not sure why. 
I have thousands in my all my titles, totally mm-hmm. independent. But Thousand One Moose was our band name. And a Thousand One Moose. Mm-hmm. And then we got a guy named Suguru, who's the actual most talented musician of the group. It was a undergraduate at Oxford who uh, came in on bongos. Suguru Fruta. We had the moose heads. We had, we had a whole like uh, fans. fans that were like super, that are our friends, but super fans. This was at Oxford pre-MD. Yeah, pre-MD. The seed for A Thousand Days and the, the seed for music sort of stuck with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So interestingly, yeah, it's, I wasn't doing any music at all. There's no possibility of music. It was literally one night, Taylor and Bruce fantasy banding and me being like, enough is enough. Do something about it. And we just started writing... We never did covers because we knew that we'd botched the covers so badly that we'd know that we were terrible. So we just had to write all of our own songs. I'm oh, impressed. Cool. You immediately started writing. Yeah. they. I mean, they did. I, it was pretty funny because I wrote one song and I, I always tell people about like the importance of um, just trying and trying again. Because I wrote my one first song. I just read an excerpt from Into the Woods, which is about this guy who's sort of pen name for himself was Alexander Supertramp, I think, and uh, had gone into the woods. And yeah. But the guy who did Into the Thin Air, same guy, right? Jack Crack. crack. Jack cra- yeah, Crackhour. Jack Crackhour. John Crackhour. John Crackhour. John Crackhour, right? yeah. yeah. John Toasted. Right. <laughs> so. And that's what Eddie Vedder did the music for eventually. Oh, is that right? Okay, yeah. yeah. He obviously stole one of your songs. Yeah, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, so I just remember I had this song called I'm Alexander Supertramp, and I huh. played it for Bruce and Taylor, and I, I was like so excited at my first song. And they literally came in, sat quietly, listened to it, and was like, okay, now. And they just got up and left. Like, it was never spoken of again. Like, it was literally, <laughs> they never... Screw That's those guys. Funny. No, it's okay. I think they went outside and laughed out loud, but it was a terrible song. It was it was a legitimately terrible song, and I think they just were like incapable of telling me like no. It's wow. a no. That's so, harsh. So, oh no, <laughs> hey. it was bad. It was bad. What was the genre of music that you wrote the song in? I mean, I was trying to write Kim Deal from the Pixies was my yeah. idol, so I was trying to write in her. I don't think she would have liked that song, but some of the other ones I've written since I might be more. I loved that song. My Certainly. first song that I ever wrote that actually made it to recording was a song that, so it started from playing Gigantic a million times and then taking the bass line, moving it around and going mm. from there. So, and I remember because I kept thinking, I was like, if I write a song with the Gigantic bass line, it has to be a cool song. It can't be a not cool song. Because I realized that I was a very edgy, dark, moody music listener, but my inner voice was a cheese ball. And I was like, why <laughs> is it that like everything that comes out of me is totally cheesy? And so I was trying to figure out how to change that. And the way I was able to make that transformation is to just take gigantic, move it, and be like, aha, that's how it can happen. And from then, I never had to do that again. I never had to try to like start from one song. But that was the transition I needed. Yeah. Dark cheese. How did you squeeze out the I cheese? Just, um, I just, <laughs> that sounds horrible. Yeah, I, I, I mean, mean, did you start I, writing more lyrics that were that were more... I Yeah, you know I found I mean? my voice. I found my, yeah, my yeah. true voice. What's interesting is a lot of people who don't do music, uh, who don't write their own music, they think it's it's a mystical thing. Like, it's people don't understand how to do it. But then once you fall into it, then you can write a song about anything. Like, it's yeah. it's just a language you need to learn and a, yeah. a, a way of doing it. And then... And then it's really fun. You just it's not that it's not that hard. You just have to get comfortable thinking in rhymes and pacings and things like that. And then and then I was able to basically find my voice and my voice is a little bit more moody naturally. Is there a scientific element of songwriting, whether conscious or subconscious? So the way I articulate it, usually when people ask me like what's the connection between science and music, is I say that people underestimate the creativity you need in science and the rigor you need in music. 
and you truly need both, right? So in science, you have to be creative at the outset. You have to think about the universe of questions that are out there or like ways to explore them and to think about you know how you might solve a problem but then you have to move forward and you have to rigorously set forth a path to test that hypothesis collect all the appropriate controls gather the data prove it out analyze it and then in music same thing you start off and you just start riffing and going in all directions and you have a jam session where you just do all sorts of music in all places but then you have to figure out how does it structure into a song then you have to lay down some 80 tracks and think about all the pieces and harmonies. And so all of, you know, both of them require like that initial creativity move to the rigor and then and then creativity that's that you also have to come up with along the way as thing moves and changes. Well, that's interesting because, I mean, we've talked to different folks in that space and people relate back to Albert Schweitzer. Mm-hmm. and other types of musician scientists that talked about that same concept over the years. It doesn't matter what generation we're in. Mm-hmm. And do you feel that when you're creating music, you're thinking about any of that? Let's say you're singing a melody. Mm-hmm. Are you just in the zone feeling the music, or are you kind of analyzing it from the outside? In the initial stages, I just let it go where it goes. Because the biggest thing you're trying to do is just find something that's meaningful or something that's good. And then you, you just kind of, you allow yourself to go off into the space to find the thing. And then once you find the thing, then you can just pull it together. And then once that comes into view, uh, you can tame it. But I, I feel like if you try to structure it too much at the outset, you'll miss that moment. There was a time that you mentioned you were in a uh, exploratory phase of life while you were in Oxford. Was there a time when you were getting more serious about music and you actually thought, maybe I'll pursue this for a while? And that conversation so. you'd have to have with your dad? Yeah, right. Um, he'd be okay as long as I had the medical degree to fall back on. He was more about, you know, having options. I would say that I never thought I would be a musician. It's just I wasn't trying to necessarily do that. But at the end of the day, I have a very, I wouldn't say very unique, but I have more sort of rare perspective as somebody who's uh, working in infectious disease and around the world. And, and so it was just my way of being able to vocalize something I was thinking. I think it was just something I wanted to be able to do throughout my life. And if I had a little bit of success from it, that'd be great. But it wasn't something that I was going to rely on. What's interesting to hear you say is that you went through more training and you got more chops, so to speak, with your day job in infectious disease research and genetics. Mm -hmm. You can emulate that with music. Mm Mm-hmm with that experience. It's like full circle. Right, yeah. That's the kind of thing which is, I'm always trying to think like what what, what kind of contribution can I have? And it is being able to link different parts because I do both and live right. in those worlds. And definitely music is also just a really beautiful way to connect with people. And if you're thinking about creating a global pandemic response system, you want to talk to people where they live. And so, you know, honestly, I, with those individuals that I work with in Africa, we play music together. And that's part of the connection, the humanity that you have to have in order to work together to solve big problems. Sitting here in this room, watching everything move, I do not know how this city
Ebola outbreak, my um, colleagues were there for the summer, part like of a seven-week training program that we you know, already were planning and doing we do every year. And the Ebola outbreak hit just as we were going into that summer. And we had already planned on the fact that we were going to record something together at the end of the summer. And so I had already started thinking about the music we could have. And we had decided that no matter what, every Sunday we were going to get together and work on the songs. But then the Ebola outbreak hit, and obviously there was a big question of do we keep doing this or not? Do we get together yeah. physically? Physically, right. even you know, and they were they were doing the training. We were I was working with the research team to do some of the the research that we put out that summer, and then also address a lot of other things going on. But no matter what, I just said, you know what, this is I'm just going to drag myself to the dorm where they were staying, and we were just going to do this no matter what. Sometimes you just make a choice. You're just like this one thing will not drop, and you usually think why. Like every Sunday when I woke up and I hadn't slept the entire week, you know, and there's a million things to do. I was thinking why am I doing this, but it just felt like the right thing to do. And this one particular week, we had just found out, all in very quick succession, two of the nurses at the hospital had contracted Ebola and then died. And then the head of the hospital, Dr. Humar Khan, had contracted Ebola. And just a couple days later, my colleague in Nigeria detected the first case there, and we were sort of on a precipice of a cataclysm as, it, as Ebola had entered a city of 20 million. And so all this was going on, and I was sort of, Dr. Khan was on the other side of the world fighting for his life, and as we gathered together in that room, we started to try different music out, and nobody really wanted to be there in a way. Nobody knew why we were there, um, you know, just didn't know what we were doing. We were all just sort of like um, sitting in that room, and we played a lot of music that just didn't go anywhere. And then there's this one track that I'd loved for a long time of just a rhythm that simply the only thing I had come up with to it was just to over and over again say, that was it. And um, I got the girls to start singing that, and we were playing the track, and all of these words just came right out of me. And part of that song says, you know, it's a lifetime that we write, we laugh, we cry, we pray, we scream, we are love, you know, and we strive, and our hunger will never die, and I'm in this fight with you always. It just felt like I was calling that out to Dr. Khan across the ocean and to everybody. And it was interesting because as I started singing that and they started repeating the words, just the uh-uh, yeah, yeahs over and over again, everyone's face lit up and there was just something. Like there was just something very healing about that. We just kept doing it over and over again. And at the end I said the, what came out of me was I've had a lifetime to discover one truth, that I'm alive and so are you. We are here. We are the proof. So the song became One Truth. I don't know where we're going to end up. I don't know what the hereafter is. I just know we're here and we are each other's proof that we exist um, and we mean something and we're just going to just keep fighting. So that was one of those things, you know, where it was good for us for our healing and our maintaining ourselves. And it was a way of speaking to Dr. Khan and um, everybody else in the fight. Did that repeat? Did you do that different days? Well, yeah. So we kept kind of writing different things, but that was the one song that just we knew there was something important that we had to say. And so well before the Ebola outbreak hit, I had just sort of booked studio time. And that was something we just set, we set aside and you just know something will happen and something will show up there. So we just went in and we recorded that song. 
In the middle of this outbreak. In the middle of the outbreak. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like a week before they went home to Nigeria and Senegal. We went in and we booked this appointment and we just were like, we're just doing this. And then we had the song recorded and finished. And then literally the night before they like were getting on an airplane to go in into the epicenter of, you know, to West Africa in the middle of the outbreak. I just grabbed my camera and I said, let's just make a video. And we ran around the streets of Boston and they brought all and I said, just bring everything, color, your all of your African gowns. And we just, it's the goofiest thing ever. We just took a van and we just moved from place to place and we're like dancing in the streets of Boston and we're dancing on the bridge and in Harvard Square. And it's one of the sweetest things I've ever been part of. But the end of the day, like if you have an event that's so terrifying like that, you don't survive by falling into paranoia and suspicion and chaos and fear. You only survive by showing your humanity and your strength and sort of that sort of power that you have together collectively. It, it seems kind of crazy that we recorded the song and went around and like danced around the city of Boston, but that is the thing that sustains you when you're in one of the hardest fights you have. Honestly, I don't, I don't consider that crazy at all. Okay. There are a lot of people who may think that doing music on your on the side is just like a hobby and all oh, yeah, it's cute and everything like yeah. that. But the healing power of music. And the importance of you going out and making that video, it might seem frivolous, but yeah. it's, it's not. It's important. Yeah. And it helps you remember the people who have, who have passed. It helps you remember to remain focused so there's no panic. I mean, you're you're talking about a horror movie. Yeah. Right? That's what you're talking. You're working in a place where there's death and there's sickness and I yeah. can't even wrap my head around it. Yeah. So the sanity yeah. is in the music. Yeah. Right? And it's been four years or so, so we have the luxury of time to look back. But the uncertainty in that type of thing, I can't imagine. It's it's yeah. not only that their loved one's dying and that this is scary, but there's so much uncertainty in those times. And it's a mantra. One of the things that I found really powerful and how I got really excited into it was I remember like on my one of my first visits to Nigeria, I was, was in the sort of local hotel. And it was like six in the morning and I woke up and I just was like, overwhelmed by the most beautiful music I'd ever heard in my life. I swear, I'd gone to a lot of concerts, and I was like, what is happening? I felt like I was being transported to some other place. And I went into the lobby of the hotel, and all of the staff and the workers and the cleaners had all gathered around, and they're in a circle. And that's how they start their day every morning, is everybody gathers, and the start of the day is you do like 30 minutes of this beautiful music. And the same thing happens in the lab where we work as well is that everybody gathers around and they sing to start the day. Do you do and that so, here? I know I'd, I'd love to do that here, but uh, yeah, mm. actually my lab does unbelievable things that you yeah, wouldn't yeah, expect. I can tell, yeah. yeah, but um, but we haven't quite gotten that yet. That would be fun. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean that's the thing is there's so many things that we just don't do because they're not expected. But if we did them, we would love. And uh, sure. I know sure. people yeah. would just love to start their day with a, you know with a good sing. Like you just you they're so relaxed and and to me it was very powerful that. That lab, I mean, they're essentially dealing with loss of fever, which is a lot like Ebola every day. And, every, you know, many days people yeah. are dying. That's uh, LASA, right? LASA. L-A-S-S-A, yep. Can you tell us briefly about that? Yeah, so LASA. Because I know you focus on that a lot. Yeah, LASA virus is a virus that's much like Ebola. It causes hemorrhagic fever, and it circulates in West Africa. And it's one of these things that's just not being diagnosed, and so people don't recognize how prevalent it is. But while we're on the, the that time period, yeah. At that time is when you were given the top 100 influential people mm -hmm. in, at Time Magazine. I, I'm one of those two. Yeah. So really, there's 2% sitting at this table. Why is that funny? No. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you hear about that? 
For this was this time. a surprise? Yeah. Like oh yeah. I mean, well, it's funny because the the first surprise was the time person of the year. 2014. Is 2014. Right. Yeah. That's, so that's sort of where like. That the time connection started, and was funny about that was that they were like, "Hey, we're just doing an anthology about the Ebola outbreak, and we just want stories from the outbreak." And mm-hmm. so, could you, you know, would you mind doing an interview? And I generally was, I wasn't doing many, but I was like, "Oh, okay, fine, yeah, I'll do that." They're like, "Okay," and they just, it was a rambling discussion, and then I didn't know, and obviously they couldn't tell you that you were in contention for the person of the year, because there's got to be mystery around that. So uh. I clearly didn't know that this was what this was for, and that shows because when you read my interview, it's pretty funny. Like it's Actually, everyone's interview is kind of funny because it's clear that they don't know that they're being interviewed for this, Interesting. or they wouldn't yeah. have said the things that they said. But mine, I'm talking about the fact that I like the movie Outbreak with Dustin Hoffman. I mean, uh-huh. I sound like a bit of a clown, but it's probably <laughs> an accurate portrayal, but I'm talking about, yeah, fact that I thought it was a great movie. I read it, yeah. And I saw it. I read it. your thing. And oh, I, yeah. I like that movie too. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, but I, I sound a little bit clownish. But it, but so that was definitely a surprise. And yeah, then yeah. they're like, hey, by the way, this was actually for Person of the Year and you're one of the Persons of the Year. And yeah, and then they followed up later and said, you're also one of the Time 100. The whole thing was really unbelievable and very kind. Seeing it in the magazine must have been pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm very conflicted about that because it's, it's I had a lot of professional success on the back of tragedy. So that yeah. part doesn't make me feel great. The only thing that, that makes me feel good about that was that I got a lot of the credit for the fact. What was interesting is I, it was the fact that I didn't care about credit. So when we were in the middle of the crisis, yeah. we generated a lot of data about genomes that were circulating that would be relevant for policy in the outbreak and for science and all this kind of stuff. And it was a decision that we made. I, I remember going to the first author of the paper and saying, hey, we've got all this data. Why don't we just share it now? Because it'll take us a little right. while to get this thing published. And we just have to move fast. Is it okay with you if we just release all this data on the web? Yeah. I don't care about the recognition, yeah. but I know you might. And he said, no, I don't either. Let's let's do it. And so, you know, as a group, we just decided, look, it's far more important to respond to this outbreak than to get any you know little academic accolade. And then the funny thing about it is I got all of this recognition <laughs> for not caring about recognition. It's karma. And so, yeah, so, so that part I'm proud of. But obviously, it's a very conflicting kind of feeling, a set of emotions when you, you were recognized because something bad happened to people. infectious diseases. Mm-hmm. Well, we have in common the time person of the year. Mm-hmm. We don't have in common, I have not <laughs> fallen off of a cliff. Mm. Count yourself, yeah, I, fortunate I do. for that. This is I not do. a metaphor, I know I you're do. talking And about. I, don't, I don't mean to make light of it. Yeah, no, it's I, fine. But, I mean, you had some serious injuries. 
I mean, you could have died. Mm -hmm. But you embraced a portion of it. There's a picture of you in a neck brace from the actual place where you fell, right? Mm -hmm. That's actually, that's the real picture of you at the base of the cliff Mm -hmm. that's on that video. It's the the song Phoenix? Phoenix. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I thought it was really, I mean, not many people would do that. Yeah, Uh, right. Especially you in such a vulnerable place and something that's so traumatic to you. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I I think that ultimately um, I am a sharer. And um, if I think it can be Again, contribute something. I was I was at a conference, at, like as the Ebola outbreak was just winding down, and I was starting to get full nights of sleep and all that. And I'd just given a talk that morning. Basically, the conference had a set of things that you would do, and one of them was a tour of the area. We were in Montana, and they were just driving us around on a convoy. And uh, I was a passenger on one of the vehicles, and in the middle of a switchback, there was just a freak accident, and the vehicle went over a cliff, and it flipped and I got shot out onto boulders and um, pretty shocking that I didn't just take my like my head didn't come off but I did have a brain injury and I shattered my pelvis in both my knees and countless number of places and how far I, how far did you fall we went down a steep embankment and then the vehicle immediately flipped and I probably got shot out just 15 yards maybe I wish there was a video to be honest uh, apparently I screamed uh, saying nonsense on the I was telling everybody I love them and how much I loved everybody and thank you and you know once you hit uh, yes yeah, so sort of what happens and and in the middle of it I apparently was just gushing about everybody and uh, then said somebody take pictures <laughs> so I just somehow said that I just want to know what's happening so my friend took some pictures and that's how I have those so I, I got medevaced out what was the last go. thing you remember so yeah I remember being on the ground I remember mm. howling uh, and then mm. I I'm actually started singing a song that became my next song or whatever but you started singing on on the cliff so i got medevac to bozeman montana to get stabilized and then i and then i got medevac from there to seattle washington to harborview right. hospital where i had about like 30 hours of surgery how long did you spend in rehabilitation four months basically a hospital bed or wheelchair bound inpatient two months in a hospital bed in my sister's house for another two months yeah and how are you doing now I'm good. I mean, I actually, I have, I have an amazing group of individuals who help me do rehabilitation. Um, so I had great surgeons, which is obviously really important. And then I have a, a group of people that I work with mm-hmm. that are really good at getting out like physical scar tissue and, uh, uh, and also like real psychological trauma and all that kind of stuff and brain. I mean, so I, I work pretty uh, diligently still and probably will for my whole life because do you I work know. with music therapy ever. I don't, but I have an amazing uh, singing teacher who I work with, who essentially is music. Actually, I should say I do because she's a Berkeley uh, music professor, but she's essentially a musical therapist as well. Because we talk about this on the show a lot, and there's there's music therapy, and then there's therapeutic music. Yeah, right. Which is probably more. Yeah. So Jeannie Gagne is she's at Berkeley School of Music, and she's done a lot of things around wellness and music. After your recovery, you said you wrote a song that was uh, inspired by that phoenix uh, well, or so was it related I, I, to it? I often talk about like recovery from a- accidents and and I talk about how it's really important to give voice to your thoughts from the deeply aspirational to the deeply painful so that's one song that I called breathe in that was sort of the aspirational about sort of walking again um, and the phoenix is more dark it also has an, a hint of aspiration at the end but it's definitely you know the, the dark thoughts that come in one of my favorite parts of the phoenix is a clip where I'm just doing these incantations that a lot of people have said sound kind of very 
Nine Inch Nails, like a hissing from the other side. And those were actually just random recordings I did from my hospital bed really? after one of my surgeries. And so yeah. it, it's, it takes me back to that time. What were the name of the, the people who like your band? What did you call them? Mooseians? Oh, my original Mooseheads. band, it was their Mo- Mooseheads. Mooseheads. Yeah. So, Ron, I don't know if you know this, but I am a closet Sabedian. <laughs> oh, yeah, I did, I did not the, know that. Uh, from the Church of, of Party Sabedi. <laughs> Have you heard of that? No, but I know she there's She is a- the next coming of the Lord. I don't know if you knew that. Oh, I did not. <laughs> there is a uh, a Facebook mm-hmm. group, the Church of the Church of Parties, Parties Sabetti. Yeah, I want to have a, a Church of Chaklau now because I you should, I'm feeling actually. a little left out. Wow, that's amazing. So people have like really supported you, and it's a very sweet set of um, at the time high school students. I teach an online right. statistics class that's taught in a lot of AP stats courses as well as college level stats mm-hmm. classes and several and, churches. Uh, yeah, and um, these students are awesome. And I, I say that I have a you know, small fan base, but I have the best <laughs> fan base. Like, the, my fans are freaking awesome. They're really smart, really sharp, wow. really go-getter kids, so I love them. It's pretty funny. Well, they, they love you back, apparently. Yeah. That's fantastic. Really that's great. Well, and we should mention, too, I think we said in the beginning, you had a baby. Mm-hmm. Talk mm-hmm. about a new chapter. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Thank you. You much. make me feel very lazy. <laughs> <laughs> Chuck, you cannot have a baby. I can't, but we did an album. It's sitting on my desk for two years, and you're healing the world. You're having babies. You're falling off cliffs. You're making albums. Yep. Get your act together, I man. Know. So. I know. I really like the song uh, Neda. Oh, okay. It reminds me of almost like a U2 vibe uh-huh. because of almost like the Sunday Bloody Sunday. Mm. I don't know the story of Netta. Is yeah. it an Iranian story in, with the yeah. revolution? or I usually, It's like raise your hand, Netta. Right, it's right, it's yeah, very yeah. political, it seems yeah, like. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. No, so basically, um, so during the Green Revolution, which was one of the uprisings of a lot of you know, young, young people in Iran during one of the elections where um, people were fighting for their rights, a lot of the students took to the streets, and yeah. a young girl named Netta was shot in the streets. It was caught on video and, uh. sh- and shared around around the world, and it went viral. And so you see her, you know, dying in the streets, shot likely by the Iranian military. Uh. The interesting thing is the word Netta means voice in Farsi, and so it's sort of like this idea that, you, that trying to snuff out the voice of the young people. The nice thing is about doing music is that you have this language in which to say your thoughts. That song was born from watching what had happened and, and reacting to it. All at once then her voice was gone As a daughter's soul passes on That to
we would like to thank Pardis and her co-workers for their amazing work. If you would like to learn more about what they do at the Sabeti Lab, you can visit sabetilab.org. To hear her music, you can find them at facebook.com forward slash thousand days band and also find their music on iTunes and other music platforms. Go to AboveTheBasement.com. You can join us on Patreon, sign up for our newsletter, listen and subscribe to our podcast, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, and look at all the nice pictures we post on Instagram. We are everywhere. On behalf of Ronnie and myself, thanks for listening. Tell your friends, and remember, Boston music, like its history, is unique. How would you like to join us in creating great conversations that inspire and connect? Patreon is a membership platform that provides a way for creators like us to build relationships and provide exclusive experiences to subscribers or patrons. We have been self-financed since we got off the ground in June of 2016, but in order to continue to fully invest all we can in each episode, we need your patronage. For more information, please go to patreon.com forward slash above the basement.